0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy, and this is another of our midweek episodes. Very excited today to talk to Aaron Rupar. Uh, Aaron is an independent journalist and the publisher of the Public Notice newsletter on Substack, which covers U.S. politics and media. He's previously worked at Vox, where he covered Trumpism and the Trump administration. Most recently, he was also notably involved in a dust-up with Twitter's cheap twit Elon Musk, who temporarily... Permanently suspended him last month before lifting the suspension after much public outcry and a pretty goofy poll. Aaron, welcome into the back room. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get started and all the political craziness, a couple of things. One is uh, we try to get a window into people's souls here. And one way to do that is to ask a couple of questions, one at the beginning, one at the end. First one is, are you a dog or a cat person? Ooh, Ooh. Uh,
1: More of a cat person by default. Uh, when I was a kid, we had cats as pets. And actually, I have a, a, I wouldn't even say slight, it's kind of like a moderate allergy to dog dander. Mm. So like, when I was in high school, or, you know, like, whenever I've had to stay over at someone's house who has a dog, it can get kind of dicey where my eyes get all puppy. And so, you know, actually, my, my wife grew up with dogs. I'm not opposed to exploring getting a dog at some point, but we have two little kids. So uh, that's enough. You know, I, I don't really have the uh, bandwidth for a dog. <laughs> but, yeah, I do have that kind of factor where I do have a slight allergy to dogs. So. Right. Fortunately, you know, that that is what it is. But I grew up with cats and love cats very much.
0: All right. You just made two cat people in the room here uh, very happy. Uh, and I have okay. two cats. I also have two dogs. Actually, I have four dogs okay. living with me right now because yeah. I have couple of kids living with me. Who have... I have
1: a lot of opinions about dogs that I don't really share publicly. Um, I get very annoyed as a runner with people who have their dogs off leash all the time. And, I totally and, get know, that. I just think people kind of, they, they always assume that their dogs are little angels and don't, you know, couldn't possibly annoy anyone or nip at people and things like that. But the, again, these are opinions I try to keep to myself because I know that they're not very popular. Uh, I, I totally popular get it. So I
0: mean, when I go running and I pass, I this dog is always barking at me behind a, a small fence. And he, I mean, I know he's looking at me like like spare ribs at a barbecue, and I'm just praying that that dog is trained or cha- trained or there's an electronic fence or something because it's
1: pretty damn scary, you know. But I think yeah, no, totally. And I've you know I've been bit a couple times as a running, uh, never severely, but just kind of nipped at, and and but it's still you know I, I kind of have that internalized now where you know if a dog comes running at me. Um, You kind of have that that fight or flight mechanism that kicks in because, you know, again, people always assume their dog would never would never do such a thing. But in fact, their dogs will do that. You know, at least some of them do not all dogs hashtag. You know, I don't want to kind of have a blanket criticism here. But but yeah, anyway, I try to keep that those opinions to myself because I know it probably cost me Twitter followers (laughs) if I express them publicly.
0: And what we do know about one thing we know about cats is that they probably are not going to be running out of the house to chase after joggers so
1: no I mean I, we did have a cat when I was young that was off that was an outside cat that we would let kind of run around tragically and I guess probably unsurprisingly that cat was ultimately hit by a car and killed which was very very sad I was in high school when that happened but then uh, cats that we had after that um, were indoor cats we kind of learned our lesson there that cat's name was Joey and he, he was a very smart cat would Actually, one one story I remember was he would climb up my parents. They had a they had a deck with like wooden stanchions that kind of led up to the deck area, and he tracked down a squirrel, which he killed, and then had the squirrel in his mouth, climbed into my parents' bedroom while they were sleeping, and set down the dead squirrel. Uh, the base of their bed while they were sleeping, so they woke up. You know, he was very proud of this. Yeah,
0: cats love that. Um,
1: obviously, my friends are horrified, but you know, such such are the joys of having an outdoor cat.
0: Yeah. Good morning, mom and dad. Squirrel. Yeah, they love it. my cats. Would do that with mice, which was certainly not as pleasant as if they brought a squirrel in. What were you like as a child? I, I, my I have this thing that like people who are involved in politics as adults had to have had that interest originate at some point in their childhood. For example, when I was eight years old, I was hanging out at at, at Richard Nixon's local campaign office and handing out buttons and bumper stickers. So, you know, wow. That, yeah, wow, right? <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. What, what about you? Like as a little kid, when you were eight years old, were you just out playing sports or doing all kinds of science projects? Or were you literally like watching Walter Cronkite talk about, you know, whoever
1: you know I've always been a since I started reading I've always been very interested in news and reading news media and I've always been an avid reader and I think my interest in politics kind of comes more from you know in college I studied philosophy and poli sci but mm-hmm. you know I was always kind of more interested in philosophy and and theory and things like that than I was in politics per se I've never been like a hugely political person although I've done some canvassing and. I worked for a short period for the Democratic Party in Minnesota in, in between jobs and journalism. So, you know, I, I have active in politics, but um, I wouldn't say that as a kid I was especially political I was much more kind of your typical, you know, I had two younger brothers. Um, we were very into sports. We were very into professional wrestling, even um, kind of things like that, you know, more so than being obsessed with politics. But, you know, I remember that I was still a little bit too young to vote in 2000 when Bush versus Gore happened. But I remember that as being kind of one of the first huge political news stories that I sort of followed as it happened, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, kind of got invested into the coverage, you know, at that time of just the controversy surrounding that election and, of course, the Supreme Court case and all that stuff. And so that's, you know, kind of I remember getting kind of more actively interested in politics around that time. Both of my parents, they're not retired, but they were both career school teachers. And so Mm -hmm. they have always been pretty liberal, you know, and active with like the teachers unions and things like that, supporting unions. And they're from a part of Minnesota called the Iron Range, which was an organized labor hotbed when they were kids. So, you know, I've always kind of had, you know, family and I've been kind of immersed in in the left of center politics, I would say. But yeah, that's actually I hadn't totally thought about how I like ended up getting into political journalism. But like I said, I think it kind of came more from my interests academically than like being, you know, directly involved myself in politics. And I kind of got into it Gradually, because, because I wasn't really covering politics as a journalist until I was around, like, 28, 29 years old, like a decade ago. So, yeah, I mean, it, w- it was always kind of like a... I've always had an interest in it, but it, I, would, I wouldn't I would say that it was something that I was obsessed with at any point. Mm-hmm. Even to this day, I mean, I like to do the evenings kind of decompress. I like to watch sports, you know. I mean, it's certainly when the news cycle calls for it, I can do kind of the full immersion and, you know, just follow politics for days on end. But, you know, especially in, in the realm that I'm in with with video clipping, you know, like Asin, for instance, who, you know, he and I are friends, but he's so immersed, you know, every evening and watching everything that happens on Fox News and tweeting out every single clip from these interviews. And I just need to have a little bit, especially with kids, these days, a little bit of a division between work and play. And so, you know, I I certainly, I'm fascinated by politics and I'm very grateful that I get to cover it for a living, but I still, maybe that's a Libra in me. I, I need to have kind of that balance between that and other things in my life
0: fellow Libra right here okay, so there you go. back at University of Minnesota you were a teaching assistant in philosophy right that's right so in philosophy the classes included logic contemporary moral problems it must drive you crazy to be in politics because like none of those things apply to politics anymore right
1: <laughs> <laughs> well that training uh, or does that help you right you, yeah. you know in terms of yeah, well, it helps me as, as someone who covers it in the sense of I can spot a fallacy when I see one mm-hmm. or, you know, with just kind of the basic reasoning that obviously is a huge part of making any sort of political argument, advocating for a specific policy. You know, there are a lot of bad arguments out there, and I think that people would benefit in general, you know, if they had more of a background in logic, just in the sense of, you know, kind of thought training and And teaching you how to how to think, giving you tools to evaluate arguments that other people are making. Um, So between that and then, you know, I think media literacy is a big part of it, too, where I think we've all had those people in our lives, you know, that we'll see on Facebook, for instance, who are just kind of like anything they read, they assume is true on social media or they can't spot that, you know, they'll read a news article (laughs) that's really thinly sourced and. They can't really assess the credibility of information that they're consuming. And so, you know, for me, I guess that was kind of of a piece with studying logic and contemporary moral problems, you know, just that ability to try and unpack the things that people are saying so you can assess whether there's actually any basis to it or how credible specific sources are.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's address the, uh, the 800-pound gorilla in the room from last month. You're, you're a very public uh, dust-up with Twitter's cheap twit. Elon Musk, and your temporary permanent suspension. Give the give the background a little bit on that. What, what happened there?
1: Yeah, um, so the long and short of it is that, um, you know, I've been obviously quite critical of Elon Musk, both on Twitter and in my newsletter. Um, I think it was probably more of a coincidence than anything, but the day before my suspension, um, I did a newsletter item looking at, Elon Musk and his brand of populism and how he kind of has a, a very sort of perverted notion of what populism is, because it's all kind of punching down at marginalized communities instead of kind of building a coalition um, of people from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I don't know what role kind of my my criticisms played in all of this, but certainly I think I was on his radar as a journalist who is critical of him. Um, you know, over the months, he had replied to some tweets of mine. And so like he. I clearly seemed to be on his radar, and mm-hmm. so basically, what happened was I had posted a tweet um, around the time that he had banned the Twitter account that was tracking his private jet, simply noting that you know if you wanted to continue following this account, may not it might not have been on Twitter at that point, but you could still follow it on Facebook because that same account was active over on Facebook, and so I posted a link to that. Um, When my account was suspended, I mean, basically what happened there was I was sitting around the condo actually playing with my kids and I started getting messages from people, text messages, emails, um, Instagram messages saying, hey, your Twitter account's been suspended. What's going on? And so I pulled up my Twitter account and um, it was on read only mode. You know, when I tried to hit a tweet, it would say your account has been suspended. You can't perform this action on Twitter and then um, a short time later there was a notice appended to the top of my feed saying that my account had been permanently suspended which was shocking news and you know at first i couldn't figure out what i had done to cause that because i had heard nothing from twitter and certainly i hadn't posted anything that i would have thought had violated any rules or anything like that and so it was you know my first emotion was kind of despondency over it because obviously you know my twitter following is how i connect with my audience Mm -hmm. it's how i get the word out about my newsletter, get my work out there in the world. And so losing that was, you know, a huge blow initially. But then, you know, within a few hours, well, just to back up one step, reporters were reaching out to me kind of asking what was going on. And one of them, uh, Roger Sullenberger, who I believe is with the Daily Beast, um, he was the one that I remember kind of pieced it together where um, he was asking me why my account was suspended. And I told him I had no idea why. And then he asked me, if I had possibly posted anything related to the Elon jet stuff. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, it actually took me a minute to kind of remember, like, oh, yeah, yesterday I did post a link to the the Facebook page. And he was the one that was kind of like, OK, I think everybody who has been suspended, the thing I'm figuring out here is that all of you had tweeted a link to this Facebook page. Um, So he was the one who kind of put that together. And then eventually I did hear from Twitter uh, many hours later, kind of confirming that that the offending tweet was that one where I linked to this Facebook page. Um, But, you know, within a few hours of being suspended, it started to become clear to me that it wasn't actually going to be a permanent suspension. And um, when Elon started posting polls, asking people when we should be unsuspended. (laughs) And so, you know, like I said, initially, I was quite bummed out over the whole thing. But, you know, within a few hours, as I had all these subscribers flooding in, like I kind of became this folk hero of sorts on Twitter, um, it became clear that actually for me personally, it was going to work out pretty well just in raising my profile and kind of um, tapping me into different audiences and gaining subscribers and things like that. And then, of course, there was a week or two where I was doing a ton of TV hits and all these different podcasts. And so obviously the broader context um, is a bummer just in terms of what's happening to Twitter and you know what that whole incident, you know, what that signal about where Twitter is going. But um, you know, I ended up getting my account unsuspended the very next day, as it turned out. And I know that some of the journalists who were suspended along with me, including Donnie O'Sullivan, At CNN, I believe he is still suspended um, because he refused to delete the tweet that caused his suspension and chose to appeal. Um, And I credit him for that. I mean, my sense and the reason I didn't go that route was that Twitter has no infrastructure to deal. There's no process for appealing, really, at this point. It's all kind of up to the whims of the very small staff that they have. And so, sure, you could kind of fall on your sword over that. But um, I think another thing is that working in the video space like I have for many years, there have been at least two or three times where my account has been locked for just complete silliness, where um, I remember one occasion I posted a video from a Trump rally uh, before Trump started speaking. And in the background, there was like an ACTC song playing or something like that. And that resulted in my account being suspended because hosting a video with that song. Sony did some sort of sweep. And they accused me of like stealing their song in mean, a little Twitter video, which is obviously absurd because it was at this Trump rally. But anyway, the point being that Did they actually
0: come after you, months. but not Trump.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea was it's I crazy. had permission to post the song. Um, and I don't know if someone with the Trump campaign would have posted a, a similar video. It's all algorithmic, so I'm assuming they would have gotten in trouble, too. hmm. But anyway, the point simply being that um, when you do video work, your account can get suspended for all sorts of nonsense all the time. And so I just kind of view this as like, okay, whatever, I'll delete the tweet and just continue on with my life. But, you know, there are these other journalists who are kind of fighting it out and their accounts are still suspended. And granted, you know, if you're with CNN or the New York Times, maybe that's okay. But Mm -hmm. someone like me, that really makes it difficult for me to continue doing my job. Now, granted, I've spent the past month building out followings on different platforms. I think I'm up to like 80,000 followers on post, which has been mm-hmm. nice. And, you know, I've got a few thousand on Mastodon. And so I'm trying to, you know, be proactive in making sure that Elon Musk doesn't have this power over me going forward. But anyway, so that's kind of what happened. That was, yeah, I think about a month ago now. And so um, I've tried not to tangle with him on Twitter and since then. Uh, well, I was going to ask you post- how is that impacted? Yeah, yeah,
0: because... The net effect of when someone like Musk does what he does, which is to really just squelch opposition and opposing viewpoints in a very authoritarian kind of way when he is the, the judge and the jury, I guess I think his intended effect is to curtail people like you from saying negative things that he believes are negative about him. And has that impacted you that way? Like when you start tweeting, do you realize... Oh my God! This might be something that Elon suspends me again for. And like, are you edit? Are you self editing now because of what happened to you?
1: You know, I honestly to a to a point, I am. I try not to when it comes to important things about kind of like the direction of Twitter. You know, and just observations about how Twitter is functioning. Or you know, I, I interviewed Lynette Lopez, who was another journalist who, sus- who was suspended about her investigations of Tesla and kind of you know. So I try not to pull punches on the big things, but like. In terms of like kind of shit posting in his replies or, right. you know, just kind of taking potshots, I certainly have been reluctant to do that just because, you know, I don't want my account to get suspended again. I don't want to give him any reason to do that. So, I mean, that feels, you know, it, it isn't great. I mean, that is sort of a dynamic of like an authoritarian system where mm-hmm. exactly I think as you rightly kind of pointed out, I mean, it, it is meant to have a, a chilling effect on criticism and critical coverage of him. Um, but, you, you know, you also kind of have to in, in an authoritarian system, I guess, kind of choose your battles a little bit. Right. And so I've been trying to kind of lay low in terms of, you know, not being in his replies or kind of Mm -hmm. quote tweeting him Mm -hmm. and letting other people kind of do that stuff because, Mm -hmm. again, I'm trying to keep my nose clean to the extent that I can.
0: Yeah. When you first saw the poll, I I know what I thought when I saw that. My thought was, this guy is really running this company based on this kind of management strategy. This is how he's going to, you know, change or not change a key decision that he just made. What was your thought when you first saw it?
1: Pretty much exactly, exactly what you, you know, similar to yours where it was like, is this really how <laughs> this is really how this is going to play out? Is, is you know, but the thing that was really interesting about that was, um, previous to then, I think that was really kind of the first instance that I can remember where Elon posted a Twitter poll and the result was not the one that he wanted. Um, Because I think the options in the first poll that he posted in terms of when the account should be unsuspended, one was like right now, one was a day, one was a week, and then the fourth one was longer. And the result that won was right now. And so then that was when I don't know if you remember this, he basically said, there were too many options in this poll. I'm yeah, redo. redo. So he just threw it out. Do over. And then he did another one. But the only two options in the second one were right now and a week from now, I believe. And then again, right now, one. And, and then after the 24 hours of voting, that was when my account was reinstated. Um, so and then, yeah, then I mean, he also.
0: A silly yeah. yeah. Then he also tweeted like a poll of like, should I step down as CEO? And the result, I mean, look, when you're, I'm not a lawyer, but I have a lot of lawyer, legal lawyer friends. And they always say like, when you're a lawyer, like never bring up anything in court that you don't already have the answer to. Okay. There's no surprises. And so what would make him think that the answer was not going to be yes, step down, but yet he's still there. And, and right after it, he was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to look for someone who, you know, might just be stupid enough to take this job. (laughs) And you're like, well, after you just said that, who's going to take the job, right? So it's like he's sabotaging his own process. So clearly his polls mean nothing, but they do indicate, like, just how erratic he is and impulsive he is in running that company.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I feel like he's been trying to, he hasn't been kind of weighing in as expected, at least at least that not that i've noticed on political topics mm-hmm. in recent weeks I mean, of course he's been you know pushing these twitter files and and there's a lot of politics involved in though. It was, but you know i, I do wonder if um, of course you know i think it's later this month in just a week or so that his first interest payment is due on the debt that he incurred to buy twitter which is a mm. huge amount of money and there's been a lot of you know there was reporting from um i believe it was casey newton that platformer that twitter's revenue this was just a couple days ago he reported that um the year-over-year revenue compared to a year ago is down 40%. And, you know, so it it might not be, you know, especially with Tesla stock tanking. I mean, there might really be some financial constraints. And obviously, I think Elon's political opinions were were only kind of damaging his brand and Twitter's brand. And so um, I, I don't doubt that he probably is interested in bringing on a CEO and kind of distancing himself a little bit from this. You know, of course, the CEO would probably still answer to him and be an ideological bedfellow of his so i'm not really expecting you know i'm not expecting it to kind of revert back to how it was when it was publicly tra- publicly traded company and there was more transparency and more of like a rules-based order on twitter but you know i have kind of noticed because you know he's one of those people in the past where it seemed like whenever people weren't talking about him that was when he would kind of you know weigh in with some sort of outrageous tweet that would kind of get people mad at him and everybody would start talking about him and I feel like he's not been doing as much of that lately. Um, granted, I don't follow him kind of for the reasons we already talked about, where I just I don't want to be baited into. Right. Re- responding to everything that he says on Twitter. Um, and in that in that respect, the dynamic reminds me a lot of when Trump was tweeting all the time yeah. where you could spend all day just kind of replying to Trump. And granted, Trump's tweets are a lot more significant, given that he was president of the United States. There's a lot of similarity kind of similar between thing, you know, where,
0: there's yeah. so much similarity between him and Trump and more so. Yeah. If you read the comments from people, like if you if you do say something disparaging about Musk, the comments that come back at you, it's literally like the MAGA crowd. It's the same. Like we have a cult leader; he can do no wrong. You know, there's no reality to anything. Truth doesn't matter. It gets you know a little in, in you know it, the, the civility goes out the window. It's so similar to how Trump created his own. Twitter online personality and, and 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 subsequently the people who follow and defend and protect him. In my yeah, opinion,
1: yeah, no, and I think it's very similar. Even when you look at Elon's replies, where it's extremely polarizing. Like you're saying, you know, you have kind of the fanboys who are basically giving him a high five every time he posts, and then you have sort of liberals, you know, um, are debunking or you know calling him up for lying and things like that. Um, so you know, it's that same sort of hyper polarized response that people have um it's like megalomania also you know it's almost like an absurd version of the trump thing because you know the stakes are so the stakes seem so small compared to trump you know when trump was on there you know threatening nuclear war against north korea um, and things like that i mean you know those are real kind of serious issues and with the elon musk stuff it's like well i'm gonna ruin twitter's algorithm which you know kind of stinks um i wish he wouldn't have done that but um you know this whole experience has kind of open my eyes a little bit that even on social media there's going to be a world beyond twitter um it might take some time for it you know for people to kind of it might take some time for an alternative to kind of consolidate as the alternative Mm -hmm. but that will happen
0: what do you think happens to twitter where is it going
1: um it's a good question um I, i don't think it's going anywhere great Right now, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think the the most notable thing over the past week, as as I'm sure you have noticed, is the introduction of this new algorithmic timeline. And um, I thought it was amusing that Elon kind of gave the game away on this, where it's basically meant to be kind of rage engagement, where like for me, you know, because I'm obviously liberal and I follow mostly liberal accounts with some, I follow some conservatives too, but the new or it's called for you on there the algorithmic feed is all kind of right wingers, you know, it's trying to get me to follow Ben Shapiro and Jim Jordan and kind of that, you know, that class of people on there, uh, Steven Crowder. And then, but the funny thing is, you know, I posted a few tweets on that. And then, uh, people have kind of been encouraging me to look at what right wingers are saying. And if you read kind of like Charlie Kirk had a post about this and some other right wingers as well, where their for you timeline is all left wing people. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of complaining about the same stuff where it's like, I don't want to follow these people. Why, why are they being pushed in my timeline? The the simple fix to that is just doing the uh, following timeline, which is just the chronological of people that you're following. And so it kind of, you know, I used to like Twitter's algorithmic thing because it would it would do a pretty good job plaguing tweets that were of interest to me sort of at the top of my timeline. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the chronological one is fine. But, you know, so anyway, that seems like a really... No one is happy with this new algorithmic feed that they introduced. Everybody's complaining about it. Um, I've seen even... Josh Marshall at Talking Points Memo last night was tweeting that it really felt for him like this is the first thing that is like a disincentive to use Twitter. That it's so annoying to him uh, mm-hmm. that it's causing him to kind of reconsider, you know, his usage in terms of how much time he's spending on the platform. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the more that Elon gives people incentives to reconsider um, how much time they're spending on Twitter, if they even want to use Twitter, if they want to be on other platforms that's not good, you know, for him um, or for Twitter's business. And like I just mentioned earlier, I mean, the revenue is reportedly down 40 percent year over year. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems like it's you know, it doesn't seem like the business, the business was already not that healthy, of course, even before he took over, which was part of the reason the board was so open to, you know, to, to him buying them out and taking the company private. Um, and it seems like it's only gotten worse since then. But, um, you know it's not an area, and this was kind of the irony of me sort of being in Elon's crosshairs and kind of becoming this, uh, having this celebrity surrounding getting suspended is that it's not like this was something I was doing deep reporting on. Um, I had done reporting on kind of how he was running Twitter um, and just sort of what that meant for users, but I've never done investigations of Tesla or like been that interested in Elon Musk per se before Mm -hmm. he took over Twitter. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't really have like deep insight into how he's going to you know what it's going to mean long term or what like his exit strategy might be um just like everybody else i'm just someone who's kind of been using the platform it just so happened that my platform on there was larger than most people and so it brought me to his attention in a way that If I wasn't high profile in there, maybe he never would have noticed me, which, you know, it ended up backfiring spectacularly on him, you know, not just with me, but suspending Mm -hmm. suspending all these other journalists as well. And Mm so
0: Keith Alderman um, was another one. To the
1: extent that he's able to take in new information and kind of change his behaviors, hopefully that was kind of a cautionary tale that that was a pretty major overstepping Mm -hmm. of how we should be running it.
0: But, you know, if he's impulsive the way we know he is and he's a, you know, megalomaniac, which we know he is, it's hard to uh, fathom him not keeping Twitter alive no matter what. I mean, when you're the richest man in the world or the second richest person in the world, you've got the money to do that. You know, but it's like, when you think about like Twitter being a town square, we now have an owner of the town square who's gated off all the entrances to the park. He lets you in. You cannot protest. You can't hang up a sign. You can't say anything. I mean, that's dangerous shit. If you're him... It's like orgasmic, it's like the best thing in the world. I don't see him, he he, he can't get that from Tesla. He certainly can't get it from SpaceX. But the question yeah. I want to ask you is, as a company, is, te- is Twitter too big to fail in the sense that we would judge any other company going through similar kind of things with revenue being down, with advertisers abandoning the, the ship by reports of up to 90%? Is it too big to fail though? Will he keep it alive forever just because it gives him a yeah. woody?
1: I mean yeah I, you know I I would think so just in that you know working in the media space and especially being like an entrepreneur in this space you know the main thing like just getting that many getting that many eyeballs onto your platform seems almost impossible to screw up mm-hmm. uh, with the amount of time that people spend on Twitter now granted it's not the eyeballs in and of themselves that makes Twitter too big to fail. It's the business opportunities that creates around advertising, like in my case, promoting newsletters, you know, because Twitter in and of itself has never really been that monetizable. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like YouTube or Facebook where, you know, basically both of those uh, if you post video on there, um, companies will insert ads into your videos and then you get a cut of that as a creator. Like Twitter never has really had that, you know, there's little they they do with like the recount or Mm -hmm. like outlets that are doing a lot of original video. You can get a small slice, but, you know, basically it's a vessel for people to monetize and promote other promote other websites or services that Mm -hmm. are monetized for Mm that. You know, but there's a lot that goes into that where, you know, one of the big problems that Twitter had before Elon took over was that they were so overstaffed. That that became a really easy target in terms of trying to get their books in shape was just to lay off a bunch mm-hmm. of people and, you know, force a bunch of people out. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, it might be too big to bail, but I don't know what that looks like. And, you know, one thing I'll just kind of mention along these lines is, you know, I posted a tweet about this last week. You know, when they rolled out this for you timeline, um, the first time I looked at that, there were a couple posts in there from Cat Turd, um, one of, you know, who's an Elon Musk favorite and used to, Trump used to retweet cat turd all the time i'm not sure cat turd is a him or her or or a group of people but any event one of the tweets that was promoted into my timeline i don't follow this person was something to the effect of boy if i was vaccinated right now i'd be really worried and it was kind of alluding to you know this idea that people on the right have that you know people who are vaccinated are just dropping dead like flies which obviously is not true but i mean just think about the danger in that with you know that was something that twitter used to be very careful about trying to suppress and ban people you Mm -hmm. know who would say stuff like that that was not in accordance with public health science and was dangerous misinformation. Mm -hmm. And now not only is stuff like that not being banned or suppressed, it's being promoted. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, that that kind of not only is that like very dangerous in and of itself, but imagine being a company. Imagine being Snickers or something and you're considering an ad buy with Twitter. Do you really want to associate your brand? with a platform that is harmful in that way. And I think, you know, more and more. And that's why, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed this, too, the ads that I see on Twitter these days are extremely low quality. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's basically a notch above my pillow and in some cases even lower than that, because it's kind of these like, you know, salacious, almost like pornographic clickbait sites and things like that. And um, I feel like even as recently as six months ago, the ads that you would see on Twitter were much more mainstream and kind of reputable brands. And so. You know, I'm not smart enough to know in terms of I haven't done enough reporting and I don't have insight to know what that means long term for Twitter, but just kind of basing on what I'm seeing now, you know, you asked if it's too big to fail. I think in some form it probably is, but I just don't know what that looks like and I don't know at what point for people like you and myself. At what point does it become? At what point do we cut bait? Kind of say this just isn't worth it. I don't want to validate this any longer. Right. I want to Spend my time here. Right. I'm not there yet, but it seems like you know we 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 could get there before too long.
0: Mm-hmm. My co-producer Maddie is a is a big critic of Musk and Twitter, and he's a big fan of yours. So uh, Maddie, do you have a question you want to ask?
1: I was wondering what you think about
0: his citizen journalism nonsense.
1: Yeah. Well, um, first of all, I mean, I do think there is something to that in the sense that. Um, I got on Twitter in 2011, but I remember um, in 2009, uh, well, for, okay, let's, first of all, one of the first nights that I was on Twitter just happened to be the night that Osama bin Laden was killed. And you guys probably remember as well, there was a, um, I don't remember the guy who did this, but he was, you know, I, I believe it was Abbottabad, I might be mispronouncing that, but that was a city in Pakistan. That Bin Laden was hanging out in, and then you know, of course, there was a raid that killed him. And there was a, a guy who spoke English who was in that city in Pakistan who sort of live tweeted the raid because remember he he saw mm-hmm. helicopters and posted a photo, and then those helicopters were identified as U.S. military helicopters. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a few hours later, news broke um, that Bin Laden had in fact been killed. And so I you know I remember that just happened to be one of the first nights that I was on Twitter. And right away, it was kind of like, wow, you know, that's amazing that this guy sort of had the scoop on this um, hours before, you know, publicly it was confirmed. And then even going before that, before then, before I was on Twitter, of course, the Arab Spring in 09, um, you know, there was a lot of people tweeting videos and photos of that, you know, as it happened, people on the ground. And so, like, yeah, there are contexts in which I I definitely think there's something to that. Um, It can be a powerful tool. For citizen journalism, but um, you know, I don't think Elon is really the best messenger for that. When we reflect on the first week and after took over, you know, he notoriously tweeted out that homophobic conspiracy theory about Paul Pelosi that mm-hmm. you know the guy who assaulted him was actually his gay lover and that it was you know a lovers quarrel sort of thing, which was debunked almost immediately. And then he deleted it without any sort of acknowledgement. And so you know, if, if that's what he's talking about with citizen journalism, I mean, that's a lot more harmful than it is helpful. Um, but, you know, I do think there's something obviously to that. We see that, obviously, even on Instagram, Instagram stories, you know, people are in conflict zones, posting eyewitness accounts. Um, that's one of the most cool things about social media is it gives us kind of that immediacy into places where mm-hmm. even, you know, credential orders can't often can't often get there or be there. But it all kind of depends on how you're doing it. And I think that with Elon, you know, we, we, I mentioned earlier kind of the media literacy, Uh, piece of all of this. And he seems to be, whether it's kind of bad faith, or this is just how he thinks about the world, like he doesn't really seem to have that capability of sort of filtering out bad information from good information. And so if you don't have that filter, um, and you're kind of credulous, and you believe most of what you read on the internet, not only does it kind of undermine the point of citizen journalism, but it can be kind of actively harmful both to yourself and others. So you know, I get what he's trying to say with that, but, you know, if you really wanted to make Twitter, you know, cultivate the spirit of citizen journalism, one of the important things is to have guardrails so you're kind of filtering out the misinformation mm-hmm. and making it a safe a safe place for users to spend time, and that seems to be a very low priority for him.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there, there a lot of the MAGA crowd and people on the right, you know, they attack the mainstream media, you know, and, and it's not a perfect institution, but... When you read something in the New York Times, you need to really understand that it's going through fact checkers and a legal team and an editorial hierarchy. Like they just don't put shit out, right? The problem with citizen journalism is when you talk about misinformation and fact checking, you know, and I think the way he's interpreting, you know, because I think you're right about videos and overseas and getting, being aware of of conflict and things like that, injustice around the world. But I, I think he's sort of doing it in that Trumpian mainstream media is the enemy of the public kind of way and like just every tom dick and harry in iowa should be able to just blog away and that's that's where we get our real journalism and that and that's dangerous in our remaining minutes i want to ask you about uh, some topical issues uh, you got a uh, a post out today on your substack uh public notice uh, newsletter. It's about McCarthy in the House. What do you, What do you You know, you, you say, uh, and I quote, news that House oversight is now controlled by a basket of deplorables is the latest indication that McCarthy sold the farm to become House Speaker. And then you say, uh, McCarthy has put the inmates in charge of the asylum. Of course, we're talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, uh, Lauren Boebert, and Scott Perry, who were added. I mean, as he's kicking out Swalwell and Schiff from their important committees, he's bringing on these lunatics into the oversight committee, and also adding George Santos to committees. What do you make of the chaos and the drama there? And what do you think the what do you think the next two years is going to be like?
1: Yeah. Well, it was kind of surreal. Maybe you had this experience as well. You know that that first week, even including the the votes for House Speaker, it, it immediately transported me back to the first two years of the Trump administration. And I had kind of like I remembered, but I'd kind of forgotten how crazy the House was in those years. You know, every hearing was like these Republicans just trying to craft a 20 second soundbite for Hannity more so than actually doing anything constructive. Right. And so now we're right back into that mode. And and that was kind of the theme of my newsletter today is that basically House Oversight is like a a Tucker Carlson uh, panel now you know, where it's like it's all of these Republicans who Mm -hmm. go on there, um, you know, on a weekly basis and, uh, you know, basically try to own the libs. And so that's what we're going to be in for for two years. And it, it is just kind of frustrating to me that that is what voters decided they wanted out of the next two years of U.S. politics, because it's obviously not constructive in any way, shape or form. But it's also not really surprising because, you know, the notion of Republican moderates is more of a myth than anything at this point. I mean, there may be a few. You could point to guys like Representative Bacon, excuse me, Representative Bacon from Nebraska. Um, you know, there, there's very few though. It's kind of an endangered spee- species of Republicans who have some reasonableness and you know some willingness to compromise. And so, um, one of the kind of interesting outcomes of this most recent election was that obviously it wasn't a good election for Mega. You know, a lot of those Trump's candidates lost in the general after winning in the primaries. Mm-hmm. But what that ended up doing was it really even though the fringe was rejected by voters, it ended up empowering the fringe because if Republicans had a larger majority, you know, people like the Scott Perry's and the Boberts um, could be ostracized and McCarthy might not need those votes. But now he finds himself in a position where, you know, with only a four or five seat majority, he needs absolutely every single vote that he can get, including George Santos, as you mentioned. And so. You know, what I'm expecting is that we're going to have a lot of hearings that will be, they will make for fascinating, if not demoralizing television. You know, we've seen a lot of these hearings, like I mentioned early in the Trump years, Supreme Court confirmation hearings. You know, I mean, you, you name it. A lot of the hearings surrounding the, the push to repeal the ACA, I remember being kind of circus like at the mm-hmm. time. But, you know, obviously anything that the House does is pretty much going to be dead on arrival at the Senate or White House, with the exception, of course, of the debt limit bite, which is kind of the next big fight that's immediately on the horizon right now and that McCarthy and the Radical House Republicans do actually have a lot of power because of the bill obviously has to go through both chambers mm-hmm. to really cause problems for the U.S. and global economies by not raising the debt limit. There's ways around that with like a discharge position where you could have a majority that might not include McCarthy. But I'm not sure that you're going to have Republicans breaking ranks on that. And so, you know, bottom line is that I think we're, we're in for a circus for the next two years it'll make for good video clipping, but I wish that, you know, I I would, I would sacrifice the video clips for a more functional Congress for the next two years, but it is what it is at this point.
0: Mm -hmm. And what do you make of the Biden Trump mishandled documents thing? I mean, there's, you know, we could sit and talk to 50 different people and probably get 50 different perspectives ranging from, you know, they're equal and then, you know, false equivalencies to what Trump did was bad and Biden did is okay or vice versa. Um, But, you know, the conventional wisdom as of right now is this is going to hurt Trump, Biden politically. It's kind of a gift to Trump. I'm not so sure of that myself, but I'm wondering what you think.
1: Well, first of all, had Trump handled the classified documents that were in his possession in places that they shouldn't have been in the way that Biden did, it never would have been this level of problem for him. Mm -hmm. You know, had had his lawyers gone to the archives and said, hey we found these documents, here they are, you know, feel free to investigate to get to the bottom of how they got here, what happened. Um, the problem for Trump was that he spent over a year refusing to give the documents back, and then lying about them, lying about not having any more in his possession, obstructing, you know, so that that's the big difference. But, you know, in terms of Biden specifically, my hunch, and I don't know this, and I'm very open to seeing where these investigations go, but my hunch is that this is gonna turn out to be kind of a clerical error where, you mm-hmm. know somehow these documents got into his possession i don't know if you know they were first of all it's important to note to note that the archives did not even know that these documents were not there whereas with trump you know they did a review to see what they had in their possession and they they identified specific documents that they did not have that they then went to the trump people and said hey where are these things so that to me kind of indicates that um, or at least suggests that this was more of a clerical error where these documents ended up in his residence maybe he didn't know that they were there um, I do think, unfortunately, that the lack of information is a very fertile space for conspiracy theories and for mm-hmm. kind of inferring the worst. I mean, Fox has been running with this narrative that Hunter Biden was looking at these documents because they're at Biden's house. Sure. And Hunter was there. JF, you know. JFK Jr. And was so looking I, at I them. Think that, what's that?
0: JFK Jr. was looking at them.
1: Yeah. Well, right. I mean, you know so the quicker that that information can kind of get out there i think the better not that getting information out there will undercut any of the conspiracy theories right because we know how that works um they will just get more and more outlandish well it's kind of the same thing
0: like with um with garland merrick garland appointing a special prosecutor it depends on who your ultimate audience is right if for example the 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 Biden Trump documents thing is to hopefully get the other side to go, oh, wow, that was a really thorough, fair, balanced investigation. And I accept the result. Same way with Garland saying, okay, you know, the special prosecutor might ultimately conclude that Biden isn't criminally responsible for anything and won't be charged but Trump is, it's not like the the MAGA crazies are gonna be like, well, we have confidence in both of these special prosecutors and we accept the outcome. Like, it doesn't matter. It's all yeah. optics and it's performative. And that's why Garland as a, as attorney general just has to do his job. And in the case of the, the documents, it's the same thing. Just the, the Justice Department, FBI, they just have to do their job because politically speaking, it's never gonna change in this toxic partisan climate Change the the opinions of the people, either on the left or on the right.
1: Yeah. And I do think that Garland had to appoint a special counsel in both instances. The mm-hmm. one thing that I am kind of annoyed with, although I'm open to I'm open to information that kind of causes me to reassess to this, is that it took him months to get around to appointing one for Trump when it was very clear that Trump had egregiously mishandled these classified documents. And, you know, part of that might have had to do with the FBI raid happened in August and then, you know, there's kind of this quiet period leading into the midterms. And then the special counsel was announced like a week later. But that, you know, there was a very protracted process. And with Biden, it was like immediate, you know, it was like right away the next day, you know, he was having a news conference and there was a special. counsel. Yeah. I think he had to in both cases. I'm a little bit worried about the special counsel in the Biden case just because it is a Trump appointee. And, you know, there are people who have concerns about kind of whether that, you know, his last name is Hugh, whether he will actually follow the facts or whether there's going to be kind of a political axe to grind there with that investigation. But, you know, I I definitely would push back on any equivalencies between the Biden and Trump situations. But I I do think it's it's impossible to argue with the idea that it is a political gift to Trump just because it gives him a way to kind of minimize his own conduct and to portray himself as being a victim of you know, basically a political conspiracy. And obviously that's a huge part of Trumpism, is playing the victim, always portraying yourself as the victim. And this just gives him another way to do that. Now, whether that will actually kind of break through to the broader public. I mean, the people I see screaming loudest about this are people who are already guzzling the mega Kool-Aid. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not really sure it's going to resonate, you know, in terms of really hurting Biden in 2024 or hurting Democrats. Um, I'm not sure about that, but. Well, you have um, people like James Comer who's. Trump could use. use
0: Yeah, like James Comer, who's the chairman of the uh, Oversight Committee. And he's like, he he talks about Biden as if Trump didn't do any of the stuff we know Trump did. It's like, you know, Jake Tapper the other day tried to press him and like, where are you on Trump? I mean, so, you know, look, if Biden did something bad, put him in prison. But that doesn't mean, you know, Biden doing something bad doesn't mean Trump is off the hook. It's just a weird what, you know, see, forget the MAGA people at home in the middle of the country or wherever they are. It's the the chairman of the oversight committee who has that kind of philosophy, you know?
1: Well, yeah, and I thought that was, yeah, it was notable because Comer on CNN, you know, he basically just caved where Tapper was kind of like, don't you, why why don't you care about the Trump documents? And he was like, oh, I do care. And we're going to investigate that, too. And it's like, (laughs) give me a break, you know, like. When he goes on Fox, he, he definitely plays to his audience there. And then he goes on CNN and tries his best to play the audience there.
0: Yeah, I think ultimately, if I could sum up the real difference between the two cases with the documents is you have one side who found documents and said, oh, my God, here they are. And you have another side that goes, they're mine. OK, you can't you can't run away from they're mine. It just says it all. My last question to you is uh, the other window in the soul question, into the soul question. And, and uh, music is the best window into one soul. So give us your top five music musical artists of all time.
1: Ooh, wow, boy. I would have to put uh, John McLaughlin, the guitarist, is one of my favorites jazz guitarists from England. Um, I had the the privilege of seeing him in D.C. Uh, actually in his last international tour. That was maybe like three or four years ago now mm-hmm. but uh he's a personal favorite um pat metheny along similar mm-hmm. lines pat metheny group has been a longtime favorite of mine um jazz was more of my interest like when i was in college I, you know i played a lot of jazz as a gigging musician for in my 20s mean so those are kind of my two favorite jazz people then I, I, you know i listened to a lot of rock and roll as well i could not put the rolling stones in my top five mm-hmm. and i'd probably have to put the Beatles in there too just mm-hmm. because i grew up on that stuff Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you put me on an island and I could only listen to five bands, I think they would have to be in there. Um, and then for a fifth one, man, you know, I am... Fr- so I'm, I'm going to have to be the homer here, being from Minnesota, and I'm going to have to put Prince in there, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I saw Prince a number of times back in the day, including at Paisley Park. And I've been a huge Prince fan going back. You know, he's actually... He's a very polarizing figure in Minnesota. Um, I had a neighbor in an apartment building i lived in and an older guy who went to school with prince who was not a prince fan at all because he had friends who would jam with prince when they were in high school prince would record these jam sessions and then allegedly steal some of the best ideas for his own songs and not really give proper credit so there are a lot of stories in the twin cities about stuff like that with prince when you know not necessarily being the most virtuous mm-hmm. um teenager you know in his 20s sort of thing but um you know, especially his early albums are, are personal favorites of mine. And so um, when he passed, I was in D.C. living there and um, it blew me away. The extent to which he became kind of this international icon, not mm-hmm. that he wasn't already, but you know, he'd been toiling in the wilderness for like 25 years, you know, releasing music that not a lot of people were really listening to and, you know, kind of, you know, working in obscurity. And then when he passed away, it was like all of a sudden he became one of the biggest stars in the world, you know, or people once again reminded of his of his greatness kind of overnight um so I'd have to put him there too so yeah I put Beatles Rolling Stones, Prince, Pat Metheny, John McLaughlin would be, would be my my five top decisions.
0: it's a good list and you know Prince it's funny you say what you said because after he died I, w- I wasn't a huge Prince fan like during the Prince decades but when he died I said that to my f- a friend of mine and he was like what he's like one of the greatest artists that ever lived and I was like, all right, uh, this person who I trust is a big music aficionado. And uh, I, I kind of went back and I I became one of those people that was like, my God, what what did I not see? And then you watch like, you know, the, the guitar solo for, you know, While My Guitar Gently Weeps from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. And it's like transcendent, you know, and I'm a big Jimi Hendrix fan. And I think that was partly part of the sure. reason I... I was like, ah, he's just you know, he's a little more than derivative with Hendrix, you know, and but he was a brilliant, brilliant genius of an artist. And uh,
1: yeah, I'd recommend it. People, if people want to go back and revisit it, "Sign of the Times," to me is mm-hmm. kind of his most classic mm-hmm. album. Um, it's a double album, but that's what you know. People want to be reminded of. They just seen the YouTube clips or kind of the hits. Um, that's an that has some deeper cuts that I think that have that still sound very fresh, even you know, 35 years later, whatever it is. Um, I just very recently saw the the Pet Shop Boys as well, which blew. Me, like they've been a personal favorite for a long mm-hmm. time. Um, i had been wanting to see them on. It was actually a concert that um, I bought tickets for like four years ago, and then it kept getting rescheduled because of COVID. It was canceled like three times, uh, and they were touring actually with New Order, so that was a really fun show to see.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then actually, you know, I've been getting into kind of like deep house music, um, yep, which I'll spare you that. But I, There's I'm where you lose kind of, me. When I'm working. <laughs> What's that?
0: I said, there's where you lose me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I find it like when I'm working or trying to write, um, anything that has lyrics I find to be kind of like overwhelming. And these days, having little kids, uh, we listen to a ton of Baby Shark and uh, Coco Melon and things like that. Who so, doesn't? Sadly, I've been like, it's it's not great stuff, but it keeps the kids calm. So um, you know, I'm willing I'm willing to listen to it for hours on end if I can um, have peace at home.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it was great having you on, Aaron. I hope you'll come back again and um, appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So there you have it, episode 36 in the can. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Aaron Rupar. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.